you have done for us, Lord, as we come before you, speak to our hearts, open our eyes and our ears, Lord, to see and to hear more of who you are, that we're just so thankful that we can come together into this place and lift you up together corporately, be glorified in this service, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, would you take your seats? Good morning, Family Church. I really don't have a voice after screaming those songs out, but what a joy it is to be worshiping with brothers and sisters in Christ. God is very gracious to us, amen? He continues to bless us as a church. We are excited as God continues to draw people to the family church as we are growing as a family almost weekly We have been voting new members in. That's something amazing. God is moving. God is working. God is changing us for his glory. But we also want to praise God because many of you have come to Casey or myself and and mentioned that you are growing in the Lord and maturing in him. Your view of, of him is expanding. It's growing. It's maturing. You're spending more time in the word of God. You're depending on him. That's what the church is about. The church is here to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's why we are here. Discipleship is a process. And we recognize this is a lifelong process of maturing in the Lord. And our goal as a church is to continue to help everyone grow at whatever maturity level you are at in the Lord. So as we begin this morning, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy, sovereign Lord, we are in awe of you. I ask, Father, that we become more in awe of you. We may be in awe of you at this moment, but I know often, Father, we aren't in awe of you when we're not loving our spouse, when we're not training our children correctly, when we're not loving our neighbors or sharing Christ with them, Father. But I ask, Father, that you continue to empower us with your Spirit to be instruments in your hands. We thank you for Christ and what he has done for us. Help us to be gospel-centered. 
Help us to think about the cross. Let it motivate us. As we sang about Christ being man of sorrows. Are we sorrowful for our sin? Are we sorrowful for a country that is rebelling against you? Churches rebelling against you. Are we in sorrow and agony like Christ? Often not so much. Help us to have the same attitude, the same heart as Christ who loved you so much, who wanted to glorify you in everything He said and did. We thank you this morning. We ask that your spirit work mightily. It's through Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are continuing our series in Ephesians, and we will be in Ephesians 1, verses 11 through 14 this morning. So open your Bibles to Ephesians 1, verses 11 through 14, where we're going to be camped out today. We're going to start in verse 11, and it says this, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So what is this inheritance Paul is talking about? What is this inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus? And of course, the answer is eternal life. It is heaven, right? When we think of heaven, we often think of streets of gold, sunny skies, vibrant, colorful flowers, and crystal blue waters. Wait a minute. Heaven sort of sounds like Marco Island. No, not really. Even though I know the streets are paved with gold in Marco Island, but often... Heaven becomes our own fantasy or playland. We often take our, our children to Chick-fil-A. Now, we, I love Chick-fil-A, but often when we go, my children aren't wanting to be at Chick-fil-A to eat the food. They want to go play on the jungle gym and play with all the kids. And it seems many of us think of heaven sort of like an adult playland. If you like golf... In heaven, they play golf 24-7. If you like fishing, the fishing's so good, the fish just jump right in the boat. If you like to sing, they have the best singers in all eternity. Angels, duh, of course, right? So it's going to be a great place to be. But really, what makes heaven, heaven? Because the reality of heaven is not that there will be golf fishing, jungle gyms, or singing, but the fact that we'll be in the presence of our almighty God. We will see him in his glory and splendor for the rest of eternity. We'll be able to worship him forever. We will see our Lord and Savior Jesus face to face, who sacrificed everything on our behalf to glorify the Father. How does that sound? To worship God for all eternity. Some of us may be thinking that the golfing and fishing sounds way more exciting. And I would say, and I would ask, do we truly love Christ? Do we truly love Christ this morning? Listen to what Paul says about Christ in Galatians 2.20, talking to the church of Galatia. You don't have to go there, but it says this, 
I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in him, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's passion, his desire was to live for Christ above all else. Our life is supposed to be wrapped up, centered on, focused on Christ as well. Let me ask you a question. Are we passionate about Christ or are we more passionate about sports, vacations, jobs, finances, etc.? If Satan can get us to love the blessings of Christ more than Christ himself, then Satan has succeeded in his mission. Why, you may ask? Well, if we love, if we love the blessings of Christ more than God himself, we have become self-focused. Think about it. If I love the gifts of Christ that he gives me, like golf, reading, fishing, more than the gift giver, Christ himself, who am I truly living for? Self. It's sort of like the teenager who wants things from his parents, like money, a car, etc., and happily takes whatever he can get from them, but the moment he is asked to do anything to help around the house or serve his family, he is frustrated and instantly annoyed. Amen. This... <laughs> And let me admit it, now I was sort of one of those teenagers back then, so the Lord has been very gracious. But this teen wants the blessings without following, loving, and truly supporting his parents and family. He wants what he wants because he loves himself, the Bible says, and because he is very self-centered. But similarly... We are that teenager when we take the blessings of God without submitting to the blesser himself. We are no different than the selfish teenager at that point. The blessings should always lead us to magnify, worship the blesser himself. The blessings of God give us opportunity to glorify God himself. This leads to point number one. Point number one says the gifts... The blessings, the inheritance all point to Christ. The gifts, the blessings, the inheritance point to Christ. John Piper says it this way. God created me and you to live with a single, all-embracing, all-transforming passion. Namely, a passion to glorify God by enjoying and displaying his supreme excellence in all spheres of life. Do we desire Christ this morning? Are we excited about spending eternity with him? Or are we more excited when we thought heaven was about golf? How we answer these questions reveals our hearts, what we truly love, what we truly care about. And don't hear me not saying what I'm not saying because we can enjoy the blessings of God, but we can never disconnect them from the blesser. But let's continue. Let's go back to our verses in Ephesians 1, 11 and 12. I'll give you a minute to get back there. And it says this, 
In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Why are people in Christ? Why are people followers of Christ? Well, what does the verse tell us? What does the verse tell us that we just read in verse 11? Paul tells us that we were predestined according to the Father's purpose, plan, and his will. And it says at the end of verse 12 that this is the praise of his glory. We see also, if we go back to verses 4 through 6, that Paul tells us that we were chosen, adopted, and predestined before the foundation of the earth by the Father God. What is my point? It is not by accident that people come to Christ. It is not by chance. And by the way, it is not up to us to save people. We are instruments in God's hands. We are messengers of the good news. Now don't hear me say this because I'm not saying this. We need to be zealous about evangelism. We definitely need to be zealous about evangelism. Casey is starting to go out on Thursdays and randomly just take a few people from the congregation and just let's talk to people on the streets about the gospel. That's what we should all be doing. We should all be doing that daily. Talking to others about Christ. But the reality of it is when we do, when we come to a person who's not in Christ, the Bible says they are dead spiritually. So it's not the words that I'm going to say is going to wake them up. It's going to be me being faithful to the gospel in the word of God. But then it's also going to be the Holy Spirit working on those people and opening their eyes as they are speaking. For further understanding that, turn to Acts 13.48. Acts 13.48. This is when Paul preached, after he preached a sermon, and it says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believe. So what we see here is Paul preached Christ, and those that were appointed, or the other word you could use is predetermined for salvation or eternal life, ended up believing in Christ. So we see here that God is sovereign over all things, including those that come to Jesus Christ. But let's go back to our main text. And we're moving on to Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. And I know I'm not doing these verses justice, but I really don't have enough time to. So that's my excuse. So, as we go forward, it says this. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantor of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Paul says that those who believed in Christ are sealed with the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be sealed with the Holy Spirit? Well, sealed with the Holy Spirit, number one, means we are secure in 
Christ. Sealed with the Holy Spirit, number one, means we are secure in Christ. Turn with me to Romans 8, 14 and 15. Romans 8, 14 and 15. And, and some of these I'll just, you have to jot down because we won't have time to wait for each verse. But it says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So we see here the ones that the Father has chosen end up giving their lives to Christ, right, it says. And it says, then we are under our Father's care. We are safe, secure in his arms. And none of us can say any longer that we are fatherless or parentless. We have the best Father in the world. Amen? But number two. Sealed with the Holy Spirit means we are genuine children of God. Sealed with the Holy Spirit means, number two, that we are genuine children of God. And growing up in high school, my job, I used to buy and sell antiques. I know that probably surprises many of you, but that's what I used to do. I would go to garage sales and flea markets and find treasures people couldn't live without. Now, okay, I'll admit this. My mom thought that most of the stuff that I bought was junk. But she was wrong. But that's a debate for another time. But they're truly treasures. But part of the process of doing well in antiquing and the antique business was to be able to decipher genuine, authentic antiques from replicas and fakes. And biblically, the Holy Spirit guarantees that we who are in Christ are truly, genuine, real children of God. Romans 8, 16, a verse down from where we were at in Romans, says this, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. God. So the Holy Spirit bears witness, testifies to our spirit that we are children of God. Number three. Sealed with the Holy Spirit means, number three, we are property of God. Number three, sealed with the Holy Spirit means we are property of God. We are children of God, but it also says that we are God's possession. Go with me to 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, where we will see this. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. And it says this. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, or you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So Paul, talking to the Corinthians here, tells them that they are not liberty to give their bodies up in sexual sin or sexual immorality any longer. Why? Because the Holy Spirit indwells them. He, is the t- he lives in the body which is a temple for him to live in. We are now God's possession. We are under his authority. And, he, and the Holy Spirit now lives within us and we are bought at such a great price through Jesus' blood. So 
Being sealed with the Holy Spirit first means that we are secure in Christ. Number two, it means that we are genuine children of God. And number three, we are truly property or possessions of God. So let's get back into our main text. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 again. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, which says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantor of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So the question that you may come that may come to mind is. How can we discern the Holy Spirit from other spirits? How can we distinguish the Holy Spirit from counterfeit spirits? And the answer to that, let's look, well, let's look at an example first in Acts 2, 12 and 13. Acts 2, 12 and 13. And this is the day of Pentecost. And it says this, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. This is the day of Pentecost, right? Where the the Holy Spirit fell on the apostles. And when it happened, the people were astonished. They were perplexed. They weren't sure what was going on. Some were saying, This was from God. Others were saying, Man, these guys start drinking really early in the morning. They're already drunk. That's, that's what they were saying. What if the Holy Spirit worked in ways that were foreign to us? How would we respond? How would we be able to decipher or discern the Holy Spirit from evil spirits? And are we even supposed to do that? Well, let's answer that by going to 1 John 4.1. 1 John 4, 1. And it says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So God's word tells us here that we're supposed to test the spirits. Why? Why should we? Because it says that there are many false teachers, false prophets that have gone out trying to lead people astray, which they are very alive and well today as well. But how do we do that? What are some practical ways to know if we are encountering God, the Holy Spirit, or demonic spirits? How can we Test them as believers. Well, the same question was asked to Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s, where revival hit in Northampton, Massachusetts. And people at first weren't sure if what was going on was from God or was from Satan. So Jonathan Edwards preached on what was the marks of true revival. And then later he wrote a book on the distinguishing marks of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at just three of those marks quickly here. And number one, the first distinguishing mark of the Holy Spirit is that Christ is exalted. 
The first distinguishing mark of the Holy Spirit is that Christ is exalted. Jesus talking in John, you just have to jot this down. John 15, 26 tells us that the Holy Spirit bears witness about me. The Holy Spirit bears witness about Jesus, it says. And then go one chapter forward in John 16. And this is Jesus again talking, and it says, The Holy Spirit will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So here we see that the Holy Spirit's role was to lift up, magnify, exalt Christ. When the Holy Spirit is moving, Christ reigns supreme, the Bible says. When we leave God's word, When we leave God's word, Christ is diminished. And we get this extreme over-focus on the Holy Spirit alone. As we see in many modern-day revivals in the last 20 years, this alone lets us know that this is not of God. The focus becomes experiential, mere emotionalism, a lack of discernment. This leads to much nonsense, like... Laughing revivals, like a revival where people would get up to speak, and as they would speak, they would freeze for five, eight, fifteen hours, and they just stood there and saying, "Wow, the Holy Spirit's really working." Or the the animal revivals where people barked and mooed like animals. Or shaking and falling and twitching like they're having convulsions in the name of the Holy Spirit and revival. Or being slain in the Spirit. Who is the focus on when this stuff is happening? Is it on God? Is it on Christ? Or someone else? Christ gets all glory when the Holy Spirit is truly unleashed. The Holy Spirit role is to magnify the Son. That's his job. The second distinguishing mark of the Holy Spirit is opposing Satan. The second distinguishing mark of the Holy Spirit is opposing Satan. Why is a mark of the Holy Spirit to oppose Satan? Well, when Christ is exalted, Satan and his demons, it says, tremble in fear. So how do we actually oppose Satan and his forces? Well, after college, I got involved in a group that taught demons were lurking behind every corner. We were zealous without discernment. I didn't have a clue about my sinfulness. I didn't have an understanding of repentance. But I was a supposed expert in Satan and demons. The problem is we can't oppose Satan. The problem is we can't oppose Satan without dealing with our own sinfulness and walking daily in repentance. Turn with me to James 4, 7, where we will begin. And we'll go all the way through 10, but we'll start in James 4, 7 and sort of look at how we're supposed to deal with Satan. James 4, 7 is where we'll begin. James 4, 7 says this, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Let me read that again. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So how does James say we deal with Satan? Does he tell us to rebuke Satan in the name of Jesus? Does James say to bind Satan in the name of Jesus? No. James says submit to God and Satan will flee from you. How do we actually submit to God? How do we submit to God? Well, let's look at the rest of the verses here. Verses 8 through 10. And it says... Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now remember, James was a general epistle to all the churches in the area. So he's talking to the Christian church in general. And James says the answer to dealing with Satan is to recognize our sin and to repent of it. Repentance means to change the way we think and act. Satan flees from us when we are submitted to God, the Bible says, and that occurs when we are confessing and repenting of our sins. For example, the Bible says that one of my roles as a husband and a father is to lead my family spiritually. But let's say I am not leading my family spiritually. Well, this is a serious offense against God. I am being sinful at that point. Why? Because Scripture tells me it is my responsibility to lead my family. When I am not confessing and repenting of sin that is in my own life, I am allowing Satan to come into my life, and I am giving him a foothold in my life when I let things go like leading my family. Or, I mean, there's a lot of things we could say. That's, a, that's one that I think is pretty serious in our time, but you could say um, all the men who struggle with pornography. I mean, we're letting sin control our lives when we are giving ourselves up to those type of things. James tells us to oppose Satan means we deal with our sin by walking in repentance. And then we come alongside others and do the same. In every letter we have, we don't have Paul talking to the church at Galatia, Ephesians, Corinthians, and saying, you know what, you just need to cast out the demon of lust. He doesn't say things like that. He says, you need to stop living in sin and repent of sin, and you need to help others do the same. That's what he says. Number three, the third distinguishing mark of the Holy Spirit is a hunger and thirst for God's word. The third distinguishing mark of the Holy Spirit is a hunger and thirst for God's word. When Christ is exalted, sin is being confessed and repented of in our own lives. Then you know that often they are saturated, feeding on the holy word of God. Turn with me to Hebrews 4.12. Hebrews 4, verse 12. It says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, 
piercing to division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Here we see that God's word is powerful. It is alive. It is active. It says it's sharper than any two or double-edged sword. Why is that? Why is God's word so powerful? We'll turn, if we looked at Ephesians 6, it tells us that God's word is the sword of the spirit. God's word is the sword of the spirit, which means someone starts reading the word of God. It's this picture of someone reading the word of God and the Holy Spirit using those words to pierce the heart of that individual, whether it's to convict them, encourage them, rebuke them. The goal is ultimately to bring them into a the closer likeness of Jesus Christ. God's word allows us to see God clearer. God's word allows us to see ourselves and others more accurately. The Holy Spirit always draws people to the word of God. John MacArthur says, The spirit that causes people to have a greater regard for the Holy Scriptures and establishes them more in the truth and divinity of God's Word is certainly the Spirit of God. So, we've mentioned that the distinguishing marks of the Holy Spirit. Number one, the Holy Spirit exalts Christ. Also, if it's really a mark of the Holy Spirit, it will oppose Satan and it will lead the people to hunger and thirst more for the word of God. In conclusion, are we seeking Christ this morning? Are we excited to to spend eternity with him? As we think about the marks of the Holy Spirit, does our life exalt Christ? Does our life exalt Christ? Are we spending time wrestling, meditating in God's word? What about our hearts? Are we walking in repentance and dealing with our own sin this morning? God's word is how we know Christ, ourselves, and others. As we end I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then Brother Al Cahoon's going to come up and lead us in communion. Let's go to him in prayer. Holy Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you continue to empower your church by your Spirit. Help us to exalt Christ. Help us to exalt Christ. Help us to see ourselves clear and to deal with the sin in our own lives. But not only that, but help us to talk to other brothers and sisters and help them, encourage them. Sometimes if we need to, even rebuke them because we love you and love them so much. And and Lord, help us to be students of your word. Help us to know your word inside and out. We love you this morning. It's through Christ's name. Amen.